Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto, it's April 4th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Posey Parker's brief but controversial visit to New Zealand got our politicians talking. Whether defending free speech and white cis men, or standing up for one of the marginalised groups in this country, politicians from all sides of the spectrum weighed in on her visit. But as our politicians take sides, are they at risk of bringing overseas culture wars to Aotearoa? And are they willing to deepen divisions in an already fractured country in exchange for a few votes at the election? Today, Dr. Lara Greaves, Associate Professor of Politics at Victoria University of Wellington, is with us on the front page to discuss the battles our politicians are choosing to fight. Lara, to begin, what would your definition be of a culture war? So to me, a culture war relies on this concept of effective polarisation. So what that is, is people on the left hating people on the right, and people on the right hating people on the left. So this drifting apart of this level of respect and liking of the other team or teams. And I think where that really plays out is specifically in cultural issues. So generally in political science, we arrange attitudes onto two big dimensions, the kind of economic attitudes and the social attitudes type dimension where, you know, people might identify as left, right, liberal or conservative along either of those dimensions. So when we're talking about a cultural, we're really talking about social issues and kind of where the parties are pulling apart, but not just where their attitudes are kind of pulling apart along that polar sort of domain, but where they're pulling apart and kind of hating on each other more and more. With that in mind, do you think New Zealand is at risk of falling into the culture war trap? Where we see any data that exists, so data exists in the New Zealand election study, which has been monitoring our attitudes at elections since 1990, and the New Zealand attitudes and values study, which has been following New Zealanders every year since 2009. Those two big studies show we have a slow kind of movement in polarization, like a quite slow compared to other countries. So there's not really anything there to suggest that there is any big concern, although those studies will keep monitoring those over time. So at the moment, any kind of culture wars, there's not a lot of evidence that they're really taking hold in our actual voters. So we might see this in media rhetoric. We might see this on Twitter, or on talkback radio, but there's no big kind of body of evidence to suggest at the moment that New Zealanders are becoming more polarised or that there's any kind of culture war is happening. There are these moments though, where we do see some level of polarisations though. So this really kicked off recently with the Posey Parker rally, for instance, and the counter-protest that resulted from that in March. How do you think our politicians fared in their respective handlings of that event? Well, when you look at where our politicians sat in terms of discussions of things like freedom of speech or trans rights or whatever, they really kind of aligned about where we would expect them to. So we saw on on the right, we saw ACT and National and New Zealand First say stuff to varying levels of extremeness around freedom of speech and calling out Marwa Davidson and all of those sorts of things. And then on the left, we saw kind of people aligning in that similar way, Labour kind of being more centrist, the Greens kind of being more outspoken and more kind of almost quite simplistic in some of their rhetoric. But we saw the parties just kind of align where we would broadly expect them to. Isn't there a level of irony too in that freedom of speech and then the individual freedom to be yourself are issues that kind of resonate across both the left and the right? It's an incredibly important issue, right? Because especially with things like the rise of the internet, we're seeing more and more discussion about where speech could be harmful or where people need that freedom or where that lack of freedom of speech could be harmful. So it's turned into a huge discussion point 
in New Zealand and like a really important political issue and one that we kind of have to figure out where to resolve it. We've seen Labour move away from hate speech reforms and kind of talk about coming back to them maybe after the election. And that was a key kind of policy under Jacinda Ardern related really strongly to the Christchurch call and the need to maybe regulate social media. So it's an incredibly important issue and become incredibly more important with the rise of the internet and the ability for really hate speech or just speech generally to follow us around in our pockets every day. So Laura, after Parker's event in Melbourne attracted neo-Nazis, Victorian Liberal Party leader John Pesuto condemned and attempted to expel his MP more redeeming for taking part. More redeeming not only attended the protest on the steps of Parliament, but was actively involved in the organisation and promotion of this protest, at which there were speakers who have known links with neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and I won't have any of it. Now, do you think politicians become too fixated on the free speech side of the discussion and not enough on Parker's extreme views? I think at this point, it's clear that there needs to be some kind of sort of policy moves around hate speech reform and thinking exactly where to sit there. That's the hard balance to strike because I think a lot of people on the right at the moment are saying that they don't need to do anything. But then a lot of people from different communities say like Muslim communities or, you know, communities, rainbow communities are saying that they're not feeling particularly safe and valued there. So something needs to happen. So I think that's a really key policy debate that at some point we do need to resolve as a country and kind of figure out what our policy will be in that space. I think generally it's a really complex debate. So another kind of idea to throw in here is that there are issues that are harder to solve and are more technical and complex. And we might call them like hard issues. And then there are issues that are kind of softer, easier to figure out. The classic one was the flag referendum. We could all all come to an agreement on, say, what our favourite flag was. And so where the actual hate speech reform sits is probably more in that technical, complex side. But then something like transgender issues, I think most people can come to a view on that quite quickly and based on things like headlines. And the same goes in this case. The external speaker, Posey Parker, her right to speak or not speak in New Zealand, enter New Zealand or not enter New Zealand. That was potentially quite easy for a lot of people to come to an opinion based on. And the political parties were actually quite clear from the outset where they sat on it. So then it's actually a lot easier for voters to kind of pick up that set of ideas from the political parties. Those issues, I think, whether you think, oh, should Posey Parker be able to speak? Should people with even more extreme ideologies be allowed to speak? Those issues are potentially more simple than figuring out how to regulate free speech versus hate speech. It's not even a versus, it's quite complicated. Laura, just building on that theme, recent studies have shown that globally most people in the Western world believe that trans people have a right to exist freely. So, I mean, is there a risk to some degree for politicians here in terms of hitching onto a bandwagon on issues that maybe voters don't care about as much as what they think they do? For a lot of these issues as well, voters already have a settled opinion. When we look at things like there was an Ipsos poll that showed that I think it was around 88% of New Zealanders thought that transgender men and women should be able to live their best life. It was wording along those lines. And only 7% of people disagreed. So there's not also a lot of people sitting there kind of in the middle having made their mind up. So for those sorts of issues, it does seem a little bit silly. But what we didn't see with all of this discussion was actually so much of a debate about transgender rights and and all of that sort of thing. We actually saw our debate more talk about freedom of speech 
So that's, I mean, at least one thing that I think people can rest a little bit easier on is that the actual rights of transgender people were less debated than freedom of speech per se in New Zealand. In that case, there are a lot of issues as well that people are settled on, things like climate change and things like the vaccine and COVID-19 even. We actually saw quite a lot of strong attitudes that everyone was all good with whatever those issues were. There are a lot of issues here where there's not necessarily a lot of people in the middle that you can move either way. And that tends to become a little bit fraught. If you're finding this episode of The Front Page interesting and informative, be sure to follow us on iHeartRadio or whichever podcast app you're using right now. Every listen helps us keep you up to date with the stories that matter. One issue that did spark a bit of a response came when Minister for Prevention of Family and Sexual Violence, Madalama Davidson, made a comment on what causes violence in New Zealand. I am a prevention violence minister, and I know who causes violence in the world. It is white cis men. That is white cis men. Okay, but so what is a woman? Now, that comment sparked outrage from National Act and NZ First and later required an apology to the Prime Minister and a correction in Parliament. What I have said to the Prime Minister is that I clarified that those are not the words that I normally use. Do you think it was right for politicians to jump on that comment as an attack point rather than discussing the point that Davidson was actually trying to make? Well, when we look at the research in New Zealand at the moment, there's a great paper by Nicole Safferley with the Attitude and Value Study that shows that the people who are becoming the most polarised tend to be European and tend to be higher income earners. And so those comments by Martima Davidson was specifically targeting a group that we know actually are European and do tend to earn more money. So it's those that group, in particular using her comments, cis white men, tend to be the group that are feeling a bit more polarised and a bit more negative towards the other side. So I think that that played out in sort of politicians' rhetoric straight off the bat, didn't it? Because they instantly said that she needed to apologise and were really focused on defending the rights of that particular group. So I think that really the rhetoric around white cis men and Martima Davidson that exploded probably aligns broadly with you know a group that kind of are feeling greater polarization that is cis white men. Given that co-governance has continued to be such a point of contention in our politics how should politicians be having discussions about difficult issues like this that are sometimes quite complex without pitting different sectors of society against each other how do you reach a consensus on an issue that is as complex as that? Yeah that's the like not even million dollar question, that's a huge question. And a question that really like the future of our politics does depend on a lot. Firstly, there needs to be less kind of, I guess, picking on people. And whether that is reducing people down to their identities, whether that is harassing people and using negative language, criticizing someone's appearance, all of that sort of kind of quite nasty rhetoric. It's important to call that out and not have that as much in our political culture. From any side, basically, either side, any side, that level of civility, which is incredibly difficult because both sides of any debate feel that their rights or collective group individual rights are under attack. So that's an incredibly hard thing to start to do. I think that in the case of Free Waters, it was quite a low knowledge environment. So people didn't have that kind of basic level of understanding of things like co-governance. They hadn't necessarily thought a lot about co-governance before. And then suddenly there was a policy there that Labour themselves have acknowledged they really didn't bring New Zealanders along with them on that. Is that essentially the trick, that if you do have a vacuum of knowledge, that vacuum is going to be filled by people who maybe nitpick certain issues and then create an issue where there shouldn't be one? 
Yes, definitely. And when we start to think of things like inequality as well, that makes it even harder because people actually kind of ping back to that economic dimension I was talking about before, that economic dimension of politics. We can see that there is increasing economic inequality in New Zealand. So then people have, across the political spectrum, a lot of people have less time to sit down and digest issues, to kind of read about the background, to try to like hear from a bunch of different sources when they're busy trying to put food on the table. So there's quite a few kind of issues there. And that's where we've seen populism and people like, say, Donald Trump pick up on that working class vote, pick up on those people who actually are least able to sit down and have that luxury of digesting all of the different issues and coming to their own authentic group position. Looking at that US example, we have seen politicians in that country get elected all the time, regardless of the comments that they make. Do you think that politicians in New Zealand can get as much traction as US politicians when it comes to these big culture war issues? Or are swing voters unlikely to be swayed by those issues? Fundamentally, there are about 10% of people sitting in the centre of any political contest. And that is people that can go between the left and the right, that can go between Labour and National. That's more researched by the Attitudes and Value Study, by the way. So that group of people, when you look at the issues that probably affect them the most, most polls show that the economy is like a huge issue for people. It's not clear how many voters you would actually win one way or the other. That's where we see perhaps Labour and National engage less in that kind of polarisation, less in that kind of culture wars type rhetoric. And that's where we see Act in the Greens and Party Māori and New Zealand First and minor parties pick up on those issues in a lot more detail and are more likely to go into bat for them. I know in the Myra Davidson worldview, everyone's a cis or transgender, something or other, brown or white, male or female. But here in the ACT Party, we're interested in valuing each person as they are for the things that they actually do, rather than putting people into a big mush of different identities where your actual efforts don't make any difference. So I don't see necessarily our major parties engaging that much in that kind of rhetoric, but really it's kind of fertile ground for our minor parties. So part of being a minor party is making sure that you differentiate yourself from those big parties, from Labour and National. And I think cultural issues are another area where they're able to really kind of, as minor parties, say that they're a different product, a different brand, a different identity from the major parties. I suppose the other problem is that if you're going to shape your identity by that, the problem with the culture war is that it can come and go quite quickly. So back in 2020, the big culture war debate was focused on statues uh, celebrating colonial era figures. That died down pretty quickly. So do most of these issues blow over over time or... Are we just having the debates in the wrong way, essentially, and leaving the door open to pick them up again down the line? I think what happens with a lot of these issues is they blow up for a couple of weeks. There are a lot of discussions. There's a lot of hand-wringing. There's a lot of worrying. We'll never be the same again. And then a couple of weeks go by and there's another big issue. So I think for a lot of them, they're not necessarily something that, you know, does turn into, say, violence or does turn into this huge group of voters voting one way. However, there are some big issues underlying what we call culture wars. There are things like colonisation and the place of Māori in modern New Zealand and the way that majority groups think about Māori. There are issues around gender and rainbow communities and inclusion. There are issues around religious inclusion across the board from Jewish people to Muslims to Christians. There's all of those big kind of issues that are bubbling beneath the surface that you know, some kind of culture war that's playing out in the media for a week or two picks up on those broader issues and trying to figure out where we're going to go with them 
in the future. And that's that's probably a really tough thing and actually is broadly reliant on a lot of people's own personal identities as well. The other thing is that a culture war sometimes feels like a symbol built on top of something far bigger. And a statue is a really good example of that. That It wasn't about the statue, it was about the history of colonisation in the country and the impact that has when it's in your public space. That's kind of a good analogy there. So it's not necessarily about the individual statue. It is about that broader underlying issue. And those broader kind of strong views on those underlying issues are what will lead someone to go out and protest or go and stand up for a particular group's rights. If we look across our political spectrum, those broader issue positions, we can see, say, the Greens, and they they repeatedly say that they're out for things like social justice. So that's where we can see our parties kind of map on to those broader social issues. Laura, if you could advise politicians right now, what should they be doing to avoid stirring up more trouble than is necessary when it comes to these big culture war issues? Well, I think that question relies on the idea that they're wanting to not stir up more trouble. And that's a hard thing when we have so many different political parties trying to get in and trying to keep over that 5% threshold and trying to keep their seats. What's really interesting is we see parties like TOP, who we know have around a few percent public support that never really stir up these issues and relatedly never get that public attention. So for someone like New Zealand First, it is actually quite important to stir up the issues because they get the attention. They're back in the media spotlight then. They get that kind of attention and base and people get a bit more energised and interested in what they're doing. So I think that for some parts of the political spectrum, stirring up these issues is going to be quite important for them to kind of get that lifeblood that is media attention and public attention. I think one of the important things around any of these sort of issue stirrings is that there's research come out of Australia their marriage equality plebiscite actually caused a lot of negative mental harm to rainbow people during that time. So that's the other kind of flip side of all of these issues is really thinking about how we protect groups when some groups we know are more vulnerable to hate crimes and political violence and attacks, or whether it's just that general day-to-day negative mental health effect, especially when we know that our mental health systems are under stress and under pressure and need more funding. Thanks for joining us, Lara. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.